the Mosaic economy is an expression of the one covenant of grace, the law itself not functioning to be a way of salvation, or even for Calvin, even a way of blessedness, because all blessings are in Christ, every blessing. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 96. I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In the study of biblical and systematic theology, students of Scripture learn about the covenant of grace, wherein the Lord freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. That's how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. But students of Scripture also learn about the covenant of works, which preceded the covenant of grace. This is a covenant made in the Garden of Eden to Adam by God, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now, some theologians would speak about the covenant of works being uh, republished, so to speak, at Mount Sinai, which is where we get this doctrine of republication. But what exactly does this entail? What do we make of this doctrine of republication? Well, joining the podcast for the next few weeks to tackle this, our Old Testament professor, Reverend Andrew Compton, who you'll hear on Zoom, Dr. Marcus Miniger from the New Testament Department, and Dr. J. Mark Beach to give a historical theological perspective on all this. Here's Reverend Compton to get us started. Well, welcome to Roundtable. We're going to begin a, a series of, of three um, podcasts just looking at this issue of uh, the republication of the covenant of works in the Mosaic economy. Now, I know that's something of a mouthful. Uh, it's something that uh, some of our listeners will be very aware of, but I bet a number of people will not. Um, but we thought it might be valuable to, to talk through this issue a bit and just help us understand kind of what uh, what the contours of this discussion are, what it entails, what what are some strengths? What are some weaknesses? But it is a bit different. We've done a couple of series in recent weeks, one of them on the Federal Vision and one of them on the New Perspectives on Paul. And so I think some of our listeners might assume that as we now approach republication, we're sort of lumping these all together. But that's not really the case. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we're, we're showing that um, this, is, this is not a topic that everybody agrees with, uh, but this is not the kind of topic that sort of runs in the same uh, problematic waters as the new perspectives and the uh, federal vision. What we thought we would try to do over these next couple of podcasts is give something of, a, of an introduction to listeners, what, what's going on with republication. We, we'd like to help listeners appreciate uh, what it, biblical challenges there are, right? There's interpretive challenges that republication is seeking to solve. And we'd like our listeners to kind of be able to sense the, the challenges that, that are being addressed by republication. We'd also like to discuss how republication really has offered some helpful clarification to questions like typology, questions of the periodicity of redemptive history. Um, and finally, we will offer our own suggestions. We'll kind of uh, get our oar in the water uh, of some criticisms we've had, mostly as individuals. We don't speak um, so much uh, as a seminary on the topic, but 
we're going to look at some ways about how some of the more sweeping uh, approaches to republication or some of the more rigid applications of republication doesn't make sense, uh, doesn't make the best sense of the textual data, and also how some of those really, uh, really drastic forms almost undermine the continuity of the covenant of grace throughout its various administrations and almost undermine uh, how the life of faith between the Mosaic administration and other administrations has so much in common. So I think that's kind of what we're aiming at here. Perhaps a good place to start is what exactly are we talking about? What is republication? I don't know if there's a a good way to give a brief description to this. I know that the the report um, from the a committee of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to study republication has offered a number. But I, I tried to think through how can an, our average listener, maybe who's not a minister, who's not been following all the podcasts or reading all the blogs or reading all the books on this topic, how should we word it to them? Let me throw this out here, uh, brothers, and you can see if if you think this is helpful or if you want to add anything to it. Um, I don't I can't think of a way to do this very concisely, but republication relates chiefly to the Sinai Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, and it refers to the way in which some theologians view the mechanism by which Israel retains life in the promised land, and they see that that mechanism, as it were, as stemming from a republishing or a reenacting of the original covenant of works, but now uh, with Israel as a nation instead of with Adam as an individual and as a federal head. And even that's a mouthful, I know, but, but I think listeners probably should note that word republication and think of the word republish, right? A, a publisher has a book, a different publisher comes along, picks it up, and republishes that book. So that's the same idea. The idea is that at Mount Sinai, in some way, the legal mechanism of the covenant of works was brought over and now applied toward retention of the land for Israel. Not about salvific blessings, not the ultimate blessing of salvation being gained by obedience, uh, but rather narrow uh, physical temporal blessings in order to point uh, forward, to paint a picture of the way uh, Christ actually did fulfill the covenant of works and did secure those ultimate blessings of the new creation. That's kind of an uh, trying to take a shot there to help the average person understand it any thoughts brothers sure i i would just say um briefly that i think at this point you sense something of a struggle to define the view partly because uh there are different strains of the view different versions of it um partly because the word republication itself can have a lot of meanings and and so you know you can republish something simply by restating that Adam had been under a covenant of works, right? That would be to restate the fact that Adam in the garden was under a covenant of works. But usually something much more than that is meant. It's not simply restating that. It is more the word, other word that you used, Andrew, reenacting or um, putting back into force in a particular way, mm-hmm. putting the covenant of works back into force for Israel in some sense, and that's actually the language that's often used in some sense. So in some sense, Israel was underneath a covenant of works. Now, how that is the case and 
and uh, whether whether that's the case, um, specifically, you know, the way in which that should be explained, or or whether that's even the most useful language, that's sort of the debate. But in some sense, Israel is being treated on the basis of or in relationship to their works in a way that's similar to what was happening for Adam, and then the assumption is dissimilar to what happened for Abraham on the one hand, or us in the new covenant period on the other, right? Um, so that's sort of the topic in general. And then exploring that, fleshing that out is where the debates occur. And then I would probably add at this point that historically the debate among the Reformed on the issue of republication of the covenant of works within the Mosaic economy doesn't exactly trace out with the modern discussion. The modern discussion is very much related to Israel uh, finding retention in the land, flourishing in the land, as uh, postulated by this republication view, through works, obedience to God's law. Whereas the historic discussion was a bit broader, simply how do you figure and how do you uh, ascertain the meaning and function of the Mosaic economy, the Mosaic covenant, within the Abrahamic covenant of grace, the eternal covenant of grace, and then specifically how that relates to the fulfillment of the promise in Christ in the New Testament. And of course, Galatians 3 was a passage that figured rather prominently uh, in that discussion as well. So even among historically among the reform there's at least four distinct views on this question, maybe five and maybe with the modern uh, discussion maybe there's six views. <laughs> six plus we start moving into a whole bunch of other <laughs> things. You know and Marcus earlier even mentioned that different ways even people holding to a republication view might articulate things. And the the OPC study committee for example, divided between what they called a substantive or substantial, substantial republication, and noting that even within those who would hold to a substantial form of, of republication, there's a number of ways they express that. And they decreed that those are, uh, or stated those are not in accord with the theology of the Westminster Standards. Whereas on the other hand, uh, there is uh, there are these administrative republication approaches, and there's a range of those people who recognize that, as as you mentioned earlier, Marcus, too, in in some sense that language, this plays out uh, in in the sense that it's a typological reenactment or a typological pointer uh, toward um, uh, that that posits analogies between how Israel retains the land and how uh, Adam w- was to secure. Uh, eschatological blessing and how Christ did indeed secure it. So th- there's a number of different ways uh, this does get debated. And in fact, the interesting thing is that even uh, the, at least the OPC report looks at Meredith Klein himself. Uh, we'll say it just a bit more because because I think Klein is a, a big reason we're having the discussion. And even gives two very different readings of Klein, recognizing that Klein had some to, to add to Mark your six plus views. You know, Klein had some some idiosyncrasies and some places where he didn't seem entirely clear, such that pe- people can take some very different readings of him. It seems that in recent years, this discussion has come up more, and I think that's given some people in our churches the the assumption that republication or, or 
is just part of a completely de novo discussion, something brand new that, you know, just kind of came over the past and we've never seen before. But as, as Mark was just mentioning a few moments ago, there has been a long uh, question of wrestling with the role of the Mosaic Covenant uh, relative to the Abrahamic, relative to the Covenant of Grace. Um, but it does seem with the work of Meredith Klein, uh, there, there has been something of a resurgence uh, of scholarship devoted to this question. Now, Klein was, um, was focused on a few polemical issues that, that I think he seemed to bring this, um, this formulation to bear upon. For example, the dealing with theonomy. Uh, Klein felt that this was a, a good answer to like hypercontinuity of theonomy between the civil laws of the Mosaic period and the New Covenant. And so uh, this, this Klein and others have mustered in service of that. Also with regard to Norman Shepard and the way Klein was, was speaking to some of those issues and Daniel Fuller and such, uh, Klein felt that this was the best way to promote the active obedience of Christ. Uh, and so he was, he was using it in, in uh, there. And I think it's an important point to reflect on a little bit is that um, in a general way, I, I think all of us here – uh, in the podcast and, and in the seminary would very much appreciate and agree with at least most, if not all of the goals for on account of which Klein and others formulated the republication thesis. Um, I mean, just to put a, a, a sharper point on one of those that you mentioned, Andrew, highlighting and defending the importance of the act of obedience of Christ to, to flesh that out, if for those who aren't totally familiar with that language, uh, it's essentially saying that we have a crucial distinction that Christ and Christ alone has um, merited through his life um, our righteousness. He has brought about our righteousness by his actively obeying the law, and he has guaranteed then our justification and our salvation uh, in a unique and distinct way as our, as our covenant mediator so that because he bore... Uh, the penalty due for our sin under the covenant of works, and because he merited all righteousness, again, underneath the law, we, by grace and not by works, receive a declaration of righteousness. Um, and so that that distinction, which we could essentially say that crucial distinction between the law and the gospel, is something that we're very zealous for to differentiate the, the true proper law gospel distinction from, say, Roman Catholic theology or some versions of a federal vision theology, et cetera, that, that elide that or soften that. Um, so we, we strongly agree with, um, those sentiments, the, the, the goals underneath, uh, on account of which this is being articulated, the republication thesis. I think the question comes up, uh, questions, is this the best way? Is a republication doctrine uh, particularly a more recent republication doctrine of Klein or those who have followed in his footsteps, is it the best way to accomplish those goals? Does it provide the most clarity? Does it does it produce other problems, etc.? Um, but at the outset, uh, we should still very much agree with and, and see our our common concerns, uh, however we might reach uh, them or, or bring them about. Yeah, I think it's helpful to recognize that theology is a fluid enterprise. You have confessions that 
uh, our expressions of faith, convictions, sometimes function as guardrails, keep us in the boundaries. But there, there is always something new on the horizon that theology has a responsibility to address. So Klein is seeking to address that, especially in light of theonomy and, and Norm Shep, some of Norm Shepard's views. But I agree with Marcus. What what does the modern republication uh, view get you, and does it itself create some conundrums or questions, or lead down paths unforeseen that you know ideas have legs that oh no now we need to head that off at the pass, so. A lot of us come to these issues from a different perspective. I don't come from this. I don't come to this issue from theonomy. The Dutch Reformed, for the most part, were not influenced. Maybe some are now, but in that era, that wasn't on the radar of the Dutch Reformed. We didn't need to write books against theonomy. It just wasn't on our radar. It wasn't a view that played, and so. I come to this question of republication more from a history of doctrine. And as I mentioned earlier, in the history of doctrine, the Reformed didn't have absolute unanimity on this question, although it's probably fair to say where they reach consensus, and all of federal theology, covenant theology, didn't find confessional expression very much within the Reformed community but, of course, the chief and great exhibit of it would be in the Westminster Standards. But even that document's going to hedge on how far to press various aspects of federal theology, including this question of republication. But what would be clear is that it asserts and affirms that there's different administrations of the one covenant of grace, and that's a very Reformed view that there's a unity, there's a oneness to the covenant of grace throughout redemptive history from the mother promise in Genesis 3 on through its absolute fulfillment and to the maps and the to the Bible, you know, the, the end of the Bible, <laughs> uh, to the maps. Um, so, but when you get among the Reformed, uh, Calvin articulates, I think, is the first big Reformed theologian who's uh, gained status and uh, helped us with this question. And he's very much that the Mosaic economy is an expression of the one covenant of grace, the law itself not functioning to be a way of salvation, or even for Calvin, even a way of blessedness, because all blessings are in Christ, every blessing. Every blessing there is is a Christ-wrought blessing, so what Calvin argues is that the law, as it's set forth in the Mosaic economy, is, in fact, nothing wrong with it. Uh, law is always law. Law always sets demands, but law is good. Law is holy, righteous, and good. If God saves people, why wouldn't he have them live according to his holy, righteous, good will? But uh Galatians 3 and that whole foil, that law-gospel antithesis, isn't an antithesis between gospel is good, law is bad, but it's an antithesis of seeking as sinner to fulfill the law 
and uh, thinking you can you're up to the task as a sinner versus looking in helplessness to Christ to God to his grace in Christ for this remedy and uh, so Calvin's very there there gives you a, a kind of foundation and that's a very short analysis of some of what Calvin says but as federal theology developed and this became debated, what you ended up with was with a, a small number, a very minority number of Reformed theologians who ventured to say that the Mosaic Covenant is, in substance, a covenant of works. Then you had many others who premised uh, something uh, rather distinct from that, that it was a mixed covenant. Uh, that is, it was partly a covenant of works, partly a covenant of grace, but in no sense, so let's make sense, in what sense? Certainly not in substance is it a covenant of works. Um, still other, more prominent theologians argued for a version of it as a subservient covenant to the covenant of grace. That is, its function was actually to work toward and help all the covenant members within the Mosaic economy live out of God's grace by seeing the futility of uh, their efforts to obey the law. Uh, but the dominant view, and these all get parsed, and it would take us too far afield to try to go through all the ins and outs, but the dominant view was that the Mosaic economy, the Mosaic covenant, was in substance part of the covenant of grace. What's important about that language is when you talk about the substance of a thing, you're talking about that which it is without which it wouldn't be what it is. (laughs) You're talking about its essentiality. And what they argued is that the mosaic economy, in its essentiality, in its internal truth, to use the words of Francis Turretin, a Reformed theologian back when, in its eternal truth, it is in substance. What it is, is part of the covenant of grace. Because that same economy, uh, mosaic economy, with the Ten Commandments and the demands of the law, you find grace preceding law. You find deliverance from bondage before any obedience is offered. You find being brought forth from bondage before they have done anything. And you find deliverance even when they're not very faithful. So it's a grace. And then, of course, within that whole uh, business of the Mosaic economy, you have all the Levitical laws, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all pointing ahead to Christ. And these are all gospel promises. So, I mean, those were the dominant views. Uh, Some, like the Amaraldians, posited a third covenant. It's a third kind of covenant. And, and so forth. But within this broad historical discussion, where every, I think every Reformed person wants to land, is that uh, there's one way of salvation through redemptive history, only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so where uh, Klein's views relative to a works principle 
leading to land blessing and fulfillment and flourishing in the land. Uh, I think this gets debated precisely at the point that I mentioned earlier from Calvin. Oh, but I thought even back then all blessings are finally grace blessings in Christ. And so if but we, we can talk about that. But to take a step back, as soon as you get into this issue of the Mosaic co- Covenant is in some sense, and I'm going to ask what sense, certainly not in substance. <laughs> That's clever. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you get into that kind of question, then you also have to ask the question, well, what's your conception of the covenant of works? And now you're supposing that the Reformed, especially modern Reformed discussion, all agree on that. Mm. And uh, so the reason some of this uh, gets rather uncomfortable among brothers in Christ who share the same confessional heritage is that we're not sure we're speaking the same language when we talk about covenant of works, talk about merit within the covenant of works, talk about reward within the covenant of works, and therefore when you transfer that over to a republication in the Mosaic uh, covenant as a kind of sort of, in some sense, some legalistic application uh, within that covenant, well, how does that all parse out? And so that's why we have discussions like this. Well, there's the introduction to republication. Next time, our faculty examines the biblical data that some in this theological field use to support republication. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.